Hello, I'm Jacob Jarvis. It's Monday morning, and that means it's time for another Start Your Week. Joining me to read the runes for the days ahead is a bunker regular, commentator, and all-around news aficionado, Alex Andreu. Morning, Alex. How are you? Hello, hello, hello. I'm fine. Thank you. So the big news from last week that's continuing to dominate was the so-called fiscal event or mini budget, which actually turned (laughs) out to be pretty big to be plain about it, let's say. The limited fiscal operation, to (laughs) use Putin terms. (laughs) Just how badly has this gone down? Don't pull your punches, mate. I mean, it's gone down badly, despite some frankly astonishing efforts from right-wing client media to present it as a tremendous conservative (laughs) budget, market reaction has made it quite clear that tremendous it ain't. I think two factors have combined to create enormous negativity. First is the scale of the cuts. Okay, Many of them were discretionary and unnecessary, but permanent. Many of them didn't really need to be announced now they could have gone into the actual budget that will have forecasts attached, etc., that's coming later in the autumn. So there are things about enterprise zones, for instance, or things about, you know, uncapping bankers' bonuses or the the top rate of tax. Mm. All all that's not going to happen until the next financial year. There was no need to even announce it now. There's a sense that it's a bizarre decision that at a time of such enormous forced borrowing to deal with mm. the, to deal with the energy crisis, a government would decide to pile loads of borrowing on top of that rather than somehow stagger it. The second thing is that the government have refused to show their workings. It really is as simple as that. Because they sideline the OBR and because they haven't really presented how they plan to pay for this in any meaningful way. Mm. You know, there is zero sense of how and when they intend to return finances to a sustainable level. Mm. Simon Clark, who is the former chief secretary to the Treasury, he's currently leveling up secretary, did the media rounds on Saturday and pressed on when government expected to reach the target growth of 2.5%, he said, I don't know, a few years, one, two, three years. I mean, what? But, you know, this is the basis on which you're, you're doing your accounts. The difference between one and three years is tens of billions of pounds, you can't you can't be loosey goosey about this stuff. So the markets have seen this and made a judgment. And it's important to understand the markets have not just made a judgment about the budget; they've made a judgment about the government based on the budget. You see, there's there's more than any individual measure, more than any single economic lever, the one thing that stimulates investment, confidence, growth is faith in the government. And the opposite also applies. If markets Mm. and businesses get the sense that the people at 10 and 11 are nuts, you can drop your tax rates to zero, you can raise your bonuses to infinity, it will not make people think you're a good bet. It will make them think the opposite. On the government, who do you think is sort of taking the most flack from this? Is Kwasi Kwarteng taking more blame or is it you know, going straight to the top with Liz Truss? Oh, Kwarteng for sure at the moment, but that's because Liz Truss has been in hiding. 
I haven't seen her since she was on the the front bench for the announcement. I haven't heard a single statement from her. When that happens, because it will, she will have to defend this budget, that'll be hilarious, I think. They have tried to wheel out the various economists that have been informally advising them on this. I suspect phone calls were made, you know, on Friday afternoon going, guys, we're getting murdered out here because of what you advised us to do, help out a little. So all the, you know, economists for Brexit have been doing Mm. the rounds, Lyons, Minford, Jessup, all of them unofficial, all of them paid by some think tank or other. I mean, Lyons on, on Laura Kunzberg on Sunday declared that the government have ruled out a recession. Just just take a moment. Yeah, we won't have one. We just won't to have To mull one. that. The government have ruled out a recession. Um, <laughs> and, and that's the basic problem, isn't it? The same people who said Brexit would be terrific for trade, that monumental idiocy, that huge lie, they're now in the center of government. They're, they're sort of like a, a, a grimmer worm tongue in Lord of the Rings, just <laughs> whispering in the government's ear while the kingdom decays. Alex, you're one of those pesky remainers talking this country down. We just won't have a recession <laughs> if we just think that we won't. If you, if well, you that, I mean, that, that is the thinking. That was the thinking with Brexit, <laughs> and that is now the thinking with our fiscal policy, that we can somehow wield different circumstances into being. The pounds hit a record low. Is this going to just keep on plunging? I don't know. I mean, look, the markets tend to rally. You know, the UK is still a major global economy. Sterling is still a major global market. So it will at some point reach a low mm. that makes it look like a bargain. Do, do you see what I mean? That yeah. that makes people think, well, eventually it will recover. <laughs> you know, even, even if it's in a couple of years after this government sort of falls and someone sensible comes in, it will recover. The other thing is that UK assets are heavily undervalued right now, both because of the weakness in the economy, but also the weakness in the pound. So you might get a little bit of busyness masquerading as economic product, which really is an asset stripping of the country, but it can be spun as economic activity and inward investment. So the 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 stats may be capable of being massaged a little bit in the in the short term. What won't be able to be manipulated is the sense that people will have that they're getting a lot less for their money. As someone put it on uh, one of the Vox Pops that I heard a couple of weeks ago, there's too much month left at the end of my salary. <laughs> I, I, you know, that no one can change. On that impact for, you know, for ordinary people, you mm. mentioned there's plenty of stuff in the budget that you know, isn't going to happen for a little while. Aside from what we're seeing with the pound, is there any immediate impact we can look out for? Well, yes, around energy bills. I mean, let's not forget they've been monumentally stupid and managed to bury it under 
you know, they managed to bury the massive measure they're actually taking to help people under a, a hysteria about bankers' bonuses. It's it strategically, this has been an utter mess from the government. But they are taking action on energy bills. Until we see how the government intends to pay for that, we don't know if it's a benefit or a payday loan with a gouging interest. I mean, any other tiny benefits around tax will be swallowed up by inflation because we are an importer, ultimately, as a country. Even the stuff we make has components of primary ingredients that are imported. So any gain to exporting or tourism from a weak pound will be lost to import prices rising, which further feeds inflation. Sterling, I think, must stabilize. I wouldn't be surprised if the Bank of England intervened if sterling continues to fall. If at any point it goes below the dollar, I think the government is in deep, deep trouble. Keir Starmer, or Sir Keir Starmer, if you want to be prim and proper about it, called trickle-down economics a piss-take on Saturday. Labour conference is in full swing, kicking off with a rendition of God Save the King on Sunday. Alex, has Labour's focus had to shift because of the mini-budget we were just talking about? Yes and no. I mean, they, they've, they have had to shift the emphasis a little bit, but, mm. but I think the budget fits perfectly into their general narrative, which seems to have been expressed on Sunday by Angela Rayner, who kept asking, whose side are, whose side are you on? That's, that was the, the phrase she kept repeating throughout uh, her speech. And it's a phrase which allowed her to bring together a lot of the stuff in the last few years. So she she was asking, she was saying, you're uncapping bunkers' bonuses while, you know, people are using food banks. Whose side are you on? But she could also say, you know, at a time the country was suffering and nurses were dying, you were funneling billions into useless PPE into your mates' pockets, whose side are you on? And so it's a theme, I think, that can bring a lot of stuff together. And I think it's a really clever one, actually, because it's very difficult to answer. Like all great political questions, it is really difficult for the Tories to answer that question, whose side are you on, without going into a long explanation of how making the richest even richer will somehow have a beneficial effect. Hmm. On that sort of narrative that Labour are conjuring up, do you Hmm. feel a little bit like it is pretty much they're saying, we're going to lay out a new plan and hope for a general election as soon as possible, because it seems clear that this government is just going to keep going down whatever yeah. horrible rabbit hole it is. So they're just saying, look, we're ready. Yes, yes. They they really look as if they're on, on election footing right now, actually. Mm. I don't know if they know something that we don't. I don't know if they think that, you know, the government's popularity will drop to such a degree that they will have no option. I have a few friends at the conference and everyone's been saying that there's polling out today that is huge, that not only is there not a trust bounce, but that she's polling lower than 
Johnson polled at his lowest, which was already, you know, in double digits below Labour. So um, I don't know. I mean, they seem to be going in what I think is a really lovely and positive direction with a better, greener future stuff, which I also uh, like very much as a slogan. And with Reeves speaking today, I think I wouldn't be surprised if it's all about a huge program of insulation and renewables. I have said many, many times on this podcast and our sister podcast that this is such a perfectly virtuous, low-hanging fruit. I am amazed the government hasn't reached for it. It literally just creates job, it improves efficiency, it drops people's bills. You know, it, it, it is good for communities. It is a visible improvement that, that people can see in their everyday life. And the government just doesn't want to go for it. I think if Labour embrace it, it will be very difficult to, to fight. Other than that, the sort of the big green planning that they've uh, they've spoken about in recent days, is there anything else uh, you're particularly looking out for that they might lay out? Well, electoral reform is shaping up to be quite a big debate, isn't mm. it? There is a conference motion today. If it's voted through on a proportional representation, although that doesn't automatically make it policy, it will push Starmer in that direction. Mm. I think public sentiment about it is changing rapidly. There was a social attitude survey published last Thursday that found in its standard question on first past the post that for the first time there was a majority of people saying, let's change it. I guess the fact that Labour might end up in, in a sort of coalition may end up demanding it. I mean, my sense is that the time for electoral reform has come. Really, that's what it feels like. It feels like it will happen. It's just a question of when. I understand Labour's reluctance completely because with everything going on right now, it could look as if they're focusing on something extraneous to the economy and the Tories will certainly make heavy weather of that. But ultimately, I think we must be brave. We can either lead on this or follow all the dysfunction in this country is linked, in my view, to its dysfunctional electoral system. And, you know, a robust case for changing it must be made. The House of Lords stuff is also terrific, and I'm, I'm very glad they're looking at reforming that. It will find very, very fertile ground in a couple of weeks when Johnson's goodnight honours list is announced, I think. Looking away from the UK, it's been seven months since Russia invaded Ukraine. To put it simply, uh, things aren't really working out how Putin might have hoped they would have. Yeah. He's now ordered his country's first military draft since World War II. There's massive protests going on. More than 2,000 people have been arrested. Alex, do you think we can expect to see more protests, but perhaps alongside that, harsher crackdowns on the people involved in those? I think a draft is just a massive gamble, really, because, first of all, because it makes a, a, the statement that the war is not going well. It makes a statement that it is a war to start with and that it's not going well. And this goes against every single thing that the Putin media has been trying to say the last 
the last eight months. And so that is a huge gamble. Yeah. It is literally against government narrative that, oh, it's all, it's just a small operation, it's all going terrifically, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He will try to dress that in the sense that this is now Russian territory because they voted in referenda to become part of Russia, and so it's it's vital that we protect our own territory. But I, it's, there's just a sense that the more he recruits, the more he tears families apart. You've seen the images of, you know, people waving goodbye at train stations. They're putting those out as propaganda to, to show how brave the Russians are. But actually what you see in those images are people who are scared and who are quite pissed off at this going on. And I think the more people he drafts, the more it will be impossible for him to contain the narrative that this is a war and it's not going well. And so, although I don't know that that things in Russia can change directly via protests, I think that when public discord and public dissatisfaction reaches a particular point, I have the feeling there are people around Putin that will give him the brandy and the revolver. So looking more broadly at the conflict, how is Russia's mobilization going? Sort of Ukraine had looked as though it had turned the tide with their counteroffensive in Kharkiv. Is that still the case? Yes. I th- um, look, we mustn't underplay this or overplay this. The gains that Ukraine has made in Kharkiv and Kherson are incredible. You know, when this pushback started... No one in their wildest dreams could have expected that they would capture this much area back. And importantly, that the withdrawal of the Russians would be so disorderly that they would end up resupplying the Ukrainian army. I heard a Ukrainian general last week say that they've gained more equipment and ammunition in 24 hours than they have the previous six months with all of the West supplying them. You know, so that's a really important aspect of this. But we also mustn't overestimate it. This is not some push that will end up throwing Russians into the sea. They're just trying to get the best position possible to defend it for winter. That's what's going on. The Russians were in quite a strong position to defend for winter, and suddenly there's been this massive push, and the Russians are now in quite a weak position to defend for winter. They're weak in terms of the resupplies that they can get in. The two bodies of the forces are almost split from each other. It's going to be a difficult winter for the Russians, much more difficult than it looked like it was going to be two months ago. And that's the key message to take away from this, I think. Another country that's witnessing mass protests at the moment is Iran, following the death of Masa Amini in custody after she was detained by the nation's morality police. Officials say some 35 people have died amid the protests. Iran's president, Ebrahim Raisi, has said he'll crack down on the demonstrations. Alex, how much of a humanitarian concern is this? I mean, it's it's very concerning. Raisi pledging, I think the quote was, to deal decisively 
with the protests. You know what that means in an autocratic regime. Instinctively, you get a sense that this is going to be bad. But I think what's going on now is, you know, I mean, the protest has spread to almost all of the 31 provinces in Iran. You see that significant amount of men are joining the protest, which I think is hugely encouraging. And it comes back to what I was talking about with Russia. In a, in a very strange way, an autocrat depends on the vast majority not being actively against them, even more than a democracy. You can achieve that by fear, you can achieve that by apathy, you can achieve that in many ways. But the point is that when a vast majority turns against you in a democracy, they will express themselves democratically. When a vast majority turns against you in an autocracy, you tend to lose your head. And so, in a very strange way, autocrats need their popularity as much as Democrats do. And it seems to me that Iran is on the cutting edge of the government becoming so unpopular that they have to concede some way on this issue of women's rights, which would be an, an extraordinary thing. Finally, polls closed in Italy's parliamentary elections at 10pm UK time last night, and provisional results show Georgia Maloney is set to be the country's new prime minister. Alex, what do we know about her, and how bad is what do we know about her? Look, it's bad. I mean, they're a far-right party. Western commentators tend to make, I think, too much of their historical connections to Mussolini's fascist party. Really, you know, you, you could make similar connections between Austria's far right and traditional fascist movements, between France's far right and traditional fascist movements, between Hungary's far right and traditional fascist movements. Let's not overly obsess about that. You know, they are a far right populist party. They're getting a lot of support from traditional left wing voters which is concerning, but it is largely a consolidation of other populist movements. You know, in, in 2018, it was Five Star, in 2020, it was La Lega, now it's Fratelli d'Italia. I think the kernel of truth at the core of this is that Italian voters are desperate. They're desperate for a lack of real alternatives. They look around and all they see is recycled politicians from the past, quite literally, in many cases, you know, Berlusconi, for instance. And so they are looking at any person, however awful, because they haven't tried that one yet. This is what's going on here. This is why Fratelli d'Italia went from 4% to 25%. They've cannibalized the share of all those other populist parties because they have a voting population that's just saying anyone, just give us anyone with new ideas. Bergamini, uh, uh, an MP of Forza Italia, which is Berlusconi's party, uh, on the radio this morning was claiming that it is a victory for a centre-right coalition. And she is right, you know, because Fratelli d'Italia only have 25%. 
So they need as much, again, in other parties, and those parties will be centre-right parties, in order to make a stable coalition and, and to govern. And this is important because it's roughly the same bloc that has been in charge before, just with a different person at the top. But Meloni will be constrained by the need to keep the coalition stable and to keep the European Union on side. Um, and, and so, yes, it's bad, but also coalitions in Italy tend to be unstable, so it may be someone completely different in charge in, uh, you know, 18 months' time. And if that's not going to happen, she will need to water her wine significantly to keep the other coalition partners in line. With the coalition practically over the next few days, how will that start to to come together? Yeah, I mean it will in, it will involve basically the the Lega, it will involve the the uh, Forza Italia, it will involve the the sort of more traditional center right people possibly although they might decide to go into opposition to stay in the opposition benches. You see what all of the last few parties that have won the election have in common is that in the previous election, they chose not to go into coalition and stay in the opposition benches. That's what Five Star did before it got elected. That's what La Lega did before it got elected. That's what Meloni did before she got elected. And so whoever decides to stay on the opposition benches this time is likely the next Italian government. Alex, thank you for getting up early to join me today. Oh, my pleasure. That was Start Your Week, out every Monday morning from the bunker. If you enjoyed it, remember that you can help us keep going by backing us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll get early episodes of our ads, merchandise, and much more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow for the weekly panel show. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Alex Andreu. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Jelena Sofronievich and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomasiewicz. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.